morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3, and what we saw the last time was, well, chapter 1 spoke about the deity of Christ, chapter 2 spoke about the humanity of Christ and how the humanity of Christ was uh, greater than the angels. Today, uh, in Hebrews 3, we're going to look at Moses. Moses is going to be introduced, and we're going to look at how Christ is superior to Moses. And what we'll find is that uh, there were blessings Right? There were blessings to the children of Israel through the deliverance, through going into the promised land. And we're going to look today at three points of why Christ is superior to Moses, because the Jews highly revered Moses, and even today still do. Now, the Hebrew Christians also revered Moses. So it's almost like this crescendo, this buildup to talk about the superiority of Christ, and then all of a sudden, it takes a sharp turn. And the message starts to change. And why does that happen? Well, because there was a dire warning about falling away. You see, the children of Israel had so many blessings. And they saw the the great miracles. They saw the manna from heaven. They saw the Red Sea parted. But they, you know, they started committing sins of what we call omission. You know, we always look at the big sins, the sins of commission, the Ten Commandments. However, the sins of omission started to form in the heart of the children of Israel, some of them. You know, many of them were good people, but many of them started to, you know, neglect God, drift away from God. And then what that did was that led to bigger sins, sins of open rebellion. And then there was this great falling away. Uh, So we're going to look at why it's important to see the blessings that we have, even as Christians, and to stay rooted and grounded in God's word and not let ourselves drift away to get to this, this difficult point. So we're going to jump in, in verse 1, and it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Of course, tailing on to what we covered in the last chapter. But he says, holy brethren, partakers or sharers, of the heavenly calling or the heavenly invitation. And even Jesus speaks about a parable of a wedding feast where invitations are given out. Invitations are given out for salvation. So who is the author speaking of? He's speaking about believers. And why is this important? Because as this starts to get really heavy, and I've told you before, some churches make the choice not to teach this on Sunday. We'll leave this for an advanced class. There's a lot of hard things in here that really have to be explained. But when things get heavy, we can't just say, well, he must be talking to the unbelievers. He's speaking to believers here. Now, Jesus has referred to two things, the apostle and the high priest. Uh, Jesus, of course, had 12 apostles. Well, I'm confused, Pastor Joe. Remember, in the strict sense of the Greek word, one to be sent, right? John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So in that strict sense of the word, he's an apostle. So from God to us, here comes Jesus. Now there's also, it's also going in the other direction. He's our high priest. What did the high priest do? The Jews would understand the temple was still around at the time that this, this was written. Well, the high priest would, because of the sins of the people, he would offer a sacrifice to God to appease God's sense of justice because God is a just God. So what Jesus would do, or the high priest would do, and Jesus, of course, was the ultimate high priest, he would take the sacrifices of the people 
and say, here it is, Lord. So you have this double thing going on here. You've got God going to the people, and you've got people going to God. Jesus is both. He's that conduit. He's that mediator. So let's establish this right now. Verse 2. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. So number one, Christ is superior to Moses in his mission and his work. We see this comparison between the Lord Jesus and Moses. It starts, and then Jesus starts to, and I I use this illustration as if, Uh, sort of a linear fashion where it was Jesus and Moses and they're being spoken of and then all of a sudden Jesus, he just takes off like a rocket, right? And and then we start to see what's going on here with the Lord Jesus. Moses could only do so much because he was only a man. Now, the symbolism of a house is introduced and we need to decipher that. The Greek word is oikos, not in the Greek yogurt, but oikos meaning house or meaning blessing or excuse me, house or family, and both are used. Aggregately, in the Old Testament, was the children of Israel. They were God's house. And in the New Covenant, it was the church, right? What is 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5 tells us? That we're at Lethoi, we're at living stones built together in God's house. And in Ephesians 2, this should really blow our minds, is that it, it says that God wants to inhabit that house, So here's the picture, you know, of this builder who's building this beautiful house with his own hands, brick by brick, care, individuality in each piece of construction equipment he puts together. And then he says, boy, that's beautiful. I want to live in that. In Psalm 22, it says God inhabits the praises of his people. Wrap your mind around this this morning. Because when we speak about things convicting, take heart when we look at things that are comforting as our foundation, that God wants all of us together, he wants us saved, and he wants to dwell in the midst of us. In addition to that, he takes a part of him, don't know how he does it, and he seals each believer with a part of him, resides inside of us in the form of the Holy Spirit. Again, we're just talking about words on a paper here, um, but when you really start to think about it, it's, it's powerful. So Moses was part of the house, God's family, while Christ built the house. And he, I would submit that his sacrificial death on the cross built the house, this eternal house, where the saints, whether in the Old Testament or New, all come together and form this house because of Christ's death on the cross. Verse 5. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So Christ is superior number two. Number one is in in the work of Moses, in the work of Christ, he's superior. Number two, in the person of Christ versus the person of Moses. Again, this takes nothing away from Moses. Moses was a great man. God used him. But we have to understand this dichotomy that starts to take place, this divergence between the two men, because one of them was fully God and fully man. 
and that, of course, was Jesus Christ. Hard to swallow to the Jewish mind back then and even today. But Moses was a, a part of the house, a servant in the house, while Jesus was over the house and he was a builder of the house. Even when he spoke to Peter, he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, some say, oh, he was, Peter was the head of the church. Are you kidding me? Little Petros? Jesus was the Petra, that big rock mass. He's speaking about himself because you can't build a church on something that's flimsy. You can't build it on a man. It was built on Jesus Christ. So he was the builder. He was over. He was the architect. He's the one who inhabits the house, and he's also the foundation and the cornerstone of the house. And we're just a bunch of little stones that go together off that cornerstone and build this house that he loves so much. So it's a great illustration there. Furthermore, Moses, the Bible says, testified of future things, namely Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the form of the Messiah, that builder. And verse 6, we are part of that house if we keep our confidence and joy of hope in Christ steady to the end. So two truths are evident here, and I'm going to explain them. Two truths that we can look at. Number one, this relationship is a long-distance thing. This faith of ours is not a fad. It isn't like fashion. It isn't like when, you know, 10 years ago we, we redid our kitchen and it looked good for that age and now times have changed so we've got to change the cabinets, change the tiles, change the rugs. Well, that's so 70s or that's so 80s. Listen, this is long distance. This isn't a fad. You know, when I was a boy, my stepfather got me into boxing and I boxed and I also would watch boxing. And back then, the heavyweights would go 15 rounds. Now, for safety reasons, they've truncated it to 12 rounds. And you see these guys, these are big guys, and they're slugging it out. And they train to go the distance. And at, at the 50, you'd see these 14th and 15th round, and they're barely holding their arms up to protect their face. And they're, they're, the punches they're throwing are just, they don't have anything left. But they went the distance. Because you can't say, ref, I'm done, seven rounds, I can't do this anymore. Right? That'd be really embarrassing and nobody would hire you again. Our faith is long distance. We need to go the distance, steady to the end, make it to the finish line. You know, when I was a kid, I, I learned about the tortoise and the hare. You know, you would think that the hare would win, but the tortoise wins. And I submit to you that the tortoise would definitely make a better Christian than the hare would. So it's my two cents. The second truth we look at is our relationship as believers is not a drudgery. You know, when I was growing up, I didn't have good direction. I didn't have good examples of what Christianity was. I um, had a lot of misunderstandings about what it was. I saw Christians as people who just didn't have fun and always had pursed lips like they were sucking on a lemon. And, you know, if I had become a Christian, I had to give up all my fun because those people don't know how to have fun. Well, that was wrong. The Bible says that joy, rejoicing, confidence, hope in Christ are all staples of this relationship. Now, we do have our ups and downs. Believe me, I have my bad days and I have my bad weeks. But I have a, a general sense of optimism, not in the world, not in mankind, not in the economy getting better, but because I know who Christ is and I know where the end of my faith lies. Worst thing that could happen is I die. If I die, I step into eternity, I'm, I'm with the Lord. I just want the Lord to take care of my family and the church. But hey, I'm, I'm good to go. If you're struggling today with these things, 
talk to somebody. Find somebody that you can trust and say, listen, I'm really struggling and I don't have that joy. And I got to tell you, just over the years of counseling people through that, it's just amazing to see the light bulb go off. It's amazing to see you give them instruction about how they can increase their faith, how they can get closer to the Lord, and their countenance starts to change. And that pack, that invisible pack, starts to be let go and drop to the, the ground. That's a blessing to watch. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, I love that, the Holy Spirit says. Man, that's something to pay attention to because the Holy Spirit, he's the one who inspired this entire book that we look at. He used fallible men, frail men and women, and he inspired them, and God's word came through these men because of the Holy Spirit. So we need to pay attention. Now, he's going to give us, he's going to bring us back to Psalm 95. It says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, proved me. They saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence, steadfast to the end. A lot of repetitive themes here. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Things start to change here. Of course, the backdrop is Psalm 95. Uh, most of us, if we're Bible students, understand the deliverance. Uh, Moses delivered the children of Israel right out of Egypt into the wilderness and ultimately into the promised land, although Moses was not allowed into the promised land because of disobedience. Generally, we look at this, the third point. Moses is, or excuse me, Christ is superior to Moses in the third point that I wanted to bring up this morning is the type of rest that he provides. Moses could only provide a physical rest. He could get them under Joshua's leadership into the promised land, but there were still battles to be fought. Christ, and we're going to talk about this, provides salvation. He provides a rest far greater than Moses could ever provide. And I'm going to cover that. Some in the church today, unfortunately, are earthbound. They're promised land focused, and it sounds good. However, we need to be heaven bound. We need to be doing everything in the light of eternity. You know, the promised land had trials, it had battles. When the Lord comes for his own, there will be no more of that. And we're going to see what the, what was, what's meant for the children of Israel, for the Hebrew Christians, and also for us. You know, there are some that, you know, the, the, the doctrine of the rapture bothers them. You mean the Lord could come at any time and call us home and restore all things? That's a good thing. Well, you know, my business is doing well. You know, my relationships, you know, my social life is really budding. Lord, how about take everybody else and give me another year down here? Now, would we say that? It would be foolish. And I have to tell you, as an immature believer, I used to think those things. There's so many things I still want to do. Let's get this straight here. This is the Lord here. He's the one who's the author of our salvation. He's the one who ministers to our soul. He's the one who saves us. If he decides that it's today, hey, it's a good thing. Again, but some are 
promised land focused, they're earthly bound, they're tethered to this earth, and they're not doing all things in light of eternity or in their hearts. So we look at this, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, so you know all these good things about Jesus Christ. So pay attention to this. Here's this sharp turn that this chapter takes. And I'll just give you a little background. Psalm 95, 7 through 11, these verses, incidentally, 7 through 11, come from in Hebrews. Uh, Psalm 95 starts out with a call to worship. And then Psalm, 91, Psalm 95 takes a sharp turn as well. It ends with a dire warning. Now let's look at this. If we go back into the Old Testament, we know a few things. That some of the children of Israel had a really poor spiritual heart condition. They provoked God. They complained about God. They developed rebellious attitudes. And one thing about rebels, they always gain a following. You know, God had to do some pretty heavy things. The Korites, the earth opened up and swallowed them up. You know, it, was pretty, it wasn't a good thing back there to be a rebel. They treated God's miracles and provisions with contempt or as a common thing. Worst of all, in essence, they called God a liar when he promised them to take them into the promised land. They looked at the giants. They looked at their obstacles and refused to believe in their heart that God could deliver them, although he told them so many times that he would, and he made promises that he would. It was their unbelief and their hardness of heart that refused them entry into the promised land. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, let's look at that and let's have a discussion about that. I believe at this point we need to digress into some symbolism. Egypt, the wilderness, the promised land. And it has nothing to do with Egypt today. It's just symbolic to what we're speaking about in the scripture and what happened in the past. Egypt was a picture of being unsaved. It was a picture of being in the world. And one thing about being unsaved and being in the world, and this may offend some today who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, is you're a slave to your sin, right? As a young man, I was a go-getter. I worked three jobs. I bought my first house. It was an estate sale. I fixed it up, sold it, made a profit, bought another house, bought the car that I wanted, dated the girl that I wanted. My whole life was around, revolved around working overtime and partying and have a good time drinking and socializing and all that stuff. And I thought I was the man. I actually had a fellow officer living with me and paying rent. I'm like, in your 20s, life doesn't get better than this. But I was a slave, you see, because all I could think about was my sinful lifestyle and how I could do it again and how I could increase it and how I could expand it and how I could you know, work it through my schedule. I was a slave to that lifestyle. See, the children of Israel, in the wilderness, they said, we had garlic. Hey, I like garlic too. I'm Italian, okay? We had onions. We had all this kind of stuff. But as they're reminiscing, what they forgot was they were whipped. They were beaten. It was hot out, okay? And they worked in the hot sun. They were slaves. And that's the thing about being in the world. You're a slave and you don't even realize it. I didn't realize it until after I became born again. I'm like, oh, this will make sense now. Two. The wilderness. Wilderness is, is tricky. The wilderness is a, really a picture of being delivered from the world, maybe being saved, maybe being a Christian, maybe the purification process as well. But one thing about being in the wilderness is you can die there and never experience 
the full provisions and the potential that God has for you as a believer. Wilderness Christians are always complaining. They stagnate their whole lives. They're in spiritual limbo. They're not where they belong. They're double-minded. And it's not for lack of God trying to get their attention. You ever hear, I've heard this, Christians get together and they start reminiscing about what they were like in the world. Well, I just talked about it, but I just told you how stupid it was. I've heard the discussions, well, when I was in the world, I made so much money. I made money hand over fist. I bought this and I bought that. And you start to think about that and you relish it. It's like, what, did did God really make your life miserable because you're not making as much money anymore? When I was in the world, I, I was a womanizer, you know, girls love me, this girl, that girl, that, okay, so what's your life now in Jesus Christ? Children of Israel did the same thing. They looked back to Egypt, which was a place that they shouldn't have looked, been looking back to, right? Promised land. That's our spiritual inheritance in Christ. This is a good place to be as a believer. This is where you have faith. This is where you have a great trust and belief in the Lord. Remember, the older folks who refused to believe that God would deliver them, God said, fine, die in the wilderness, stay here. You don't want to be in my promised land? You don't believe I can do it? No problem. Under a certain age, the next generation was allowed to go into the promised land because they had faith. Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, they're huge. Yeah, they're big. Yeah, they're gigantic. But God, it's God's problem. He, we can take them. And the other ten wanted to stone them, the other spies. What are you, crazy? Look at the size of these guys. So the ones who believed, the ones who had faith, were allowed entry into the promised land. So being in the promised land is a good thing, you know, where we still have problems as Christians. We're still fighting battles. People still come against us, but we're obedient, and we're fulfilling God's purpose in our lives. Now, some think that it's heaven, but I would say no, because there was still battles in the promised land, and there was still sin. Okay. The fourth point that I want to get into as we go through this, and the last point in this particular section, is rest. There's three types of rests that we can look in here, and some would maybe add more. That's okay. The first rest was getting into the promised land. Uh, land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, you just go outside, there's fresh water, you don't have to complain to God and say, it's so dry out here, it's lush greenery, there's milk, there's honey, there's all kinds of great stuff in the promised land. And that was great when the children of Israel went into the promised land. There's a second rest, which Moses could only point to in the future, and that was that rest in Christ. This is better, because this rest is of the rest of the salvation of Jesus Christ. So we go from a physical deliverance to a spiritual deliverance. And really, what we're establishing and enjoying now as believers, let's not make the disconnect, let's connect the dots. What we're enjoying now as believers points to the future rest when we don't get cancer anymore, when our feelings don't get hurt anymore, when people don't reject us anymore, when we don't have bad weeks and bad days. We get to spend eternity with God. So that's that future rest when we truly cease from all of our labors. We're heaven-bound and heaven-focused. The issue for the Hebrew Christians was, it wasn't that long ago, the children of Israel did this. I know you guys are facing persecution. Don't go there. Like that expression goes, don't go there. Don't go back there. It's not a good thing. 
How does this affect us in 2013? Well, two points I want to make. In this chapter, the word harden is used three times, and the word heart is used four times. And I had an inkling, so I went into my Greek dictionary, and I looked up the word harden. And the word harden is scleruno, where we get the word atherosclerosis from, right? The hardening of the arteries. I'm like, I know I think weird thoughts, and I, I'm making this connection. And actually, I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, it was a good connection to make. Thank you, Lord. When you look at the heart muscle, this plaque, this, these materials that start to build up in our blood vessels, it's very insidious. It's very slow. It starts to make its way in there and finds a little nesting place inside that thin blood vessel. It starts to build up little by little, little by little. The heart muscle, if it's around the heart, is starting to suffer. It's not getting that rich oxygenated blood that it needs and the tissue starts to die. Then we have things like heart attacks and other problems and emergency surgeries that have to take place. But this is a slow process that you don't even notice it. That's why it's called one of the things, one of the diseases, it's called the silent killer. However, unbelief, taking God for granted, being in the Christian culture, hey, it's cool being in the Christian culture, but it can be insidious, it can be slow. We pray less, we read less, we start skipping out of church, we don't fellowship as much, we don't confess our sins to God. God becomes Santa Claus now. Every time we talk to him, it's because we have a list of things we want him to, to accomplish. And then when we're done, we roll up the list and we say, thank you very much. And we go back to our life. It's a slow... Remember, he's speaking to Jewish believers. He's speaking to Christians. It gets worse. When this type of believer hears the word, they're not convicted anymore. Gee, I wish my spouse was here to hear this. You know, I wish my, my mom was here. Man, she's always on me about this subject. And we hear convicting words from the pulpit, we read it, and it does nothing anymore. It starts to deaden our, our spiritual heart. It's like the hardening of the arteries. Or maybe when they're confronted and convicted with something through the word, they lie. I've seen this. Well, you're a believer. You're just, you're just lying to my face multiple times because they don't want to get caught. They don't want to repent. They know what that means. It's humbling. Don't harden your heart as some of the children of Israel did. They saw the miracles, but because they hardened their heart, it opened them up to open rebellion, disbelief in God, and really considering God a liar. It's a slow process. Two, rebellion. Harden of the heart, rebellion. These words are used throughout this chapter. Now, somehow, 2,000 years later, it's become cool in some of the Christian genre to be a Christian rebel. That's an oxymoron. <laughs> obedient Christian, yes Christian rebel, no I've had some brag to me about being thrown out of church more than one do you think that when you go to heaven and you meet the Lord and he, he's there in judgment and you say and he looks at your resume and he goes wow, you've been kicked out of three churches you didn't really serve you weren't part of the body of Christ you weren't open to conviction you march to the beat of your own drum. What, what, I don't think that's cool. There's no redeeming qualities there. Right? But that's what we see. I'll tell you this. You show me a person who's rebellious to the Word of God, rebellious to authority, rebellious to spiritual authority, 
And I'll tell you, they can say that they love the Lord, but they don't because it permeates their whole being. It's a constant theme with this type of person. So being a rebel is really not cool. I thought it was cool, but I was immature. Now I understand submission to the Lord. I understand submission to um, men in my life that have gone before me that are believers and they can speak into my life. You know, it's not a cool thing. Brothers and sisters, let's not just write this off because it was written a long time ago. And better yet, it's referring to something even further back in the children of Israel. How do we apply this to our lives? We're going to cover that at the end. Just a few more quick distinctions between Moses and Jesus. Number one, Moses helped to usher in the law. Jesus ushered in grace. Moses referred to a future salvation. Jesus offered and embodied that future salvation. Moses was not even allowed to go into the promised land because of a major disobedience in his life and misrepresentation of God. However, Jesus, the Bible says, was obedient in all things, even obedient to the cross, that miserable, filthy, blood-stained, jagged, splinter-producing cross that when he was nailed to that cross, he took my sins. Even as a Christian, he paid for those sins too. Obedient all the way to the end. So let's just get that straight there. Verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you, I'm reading this again, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort or encourage one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end while it is said, and he repeats this, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Beware, brethren. Again, brethren. These are key words that he's saying here. There is no ambiguity to who his audience is. He's speaking to believers. Verse 12, beware. Literally means to look at, or in a spiritual sense, open your spiritual eyes. I know your eyes are open, but you've got to open your spiritual eyes when I say these things to you. He's telling them. An evil heart of unbelief resulting in departing from the living God. God is highly offended when we don't believe him. You know, it's funny, even the atheist groups, they'll get together and they'll spend a lot of money. They'll get attorneys. They'll fight tooth and nail. I don't want to see a crucifix. I don't want a valedictorian to say Jesus in their, you know, opening prayer. Um, And they'll fight and they'll go all the way to the, Michael Newdow is a famous one. Guy has spent so much money trying to chase away a pink elephant. He doesn't believe in God. There's no such thing as God. So let the foolish Christians believe what they want. Why are you spending so much money trying to eradicate something that doesn't exist? The truth is they're in rebellion against God. And they're going to thumb their nose in God and say, I don't believe in you. You don't exist. Who are you talking to? (laughs) One of the most grievous sins is the sin of unbelief when we don't believe in God, when we don't trust him, when we don't think he can come through on his promises. Careful of that. But he says this, exhort each other. Exhort each other. Encourage each other. And this is why, do you have to come to church to be saved? Call it out. Thank you. Everybody was unanimous. But there's an aspect of fellowship. And you can't exhort each other when you're in the world all the time and you don't, you don't 
mingle with other believers, other brothers and sisters. That's what the body of Christ is for. You see, when we went through the book of Acts, we really saw what the church is supposed to look like. Today it's become, I'm going to hop from church to church to church, this event, that speaker, that pastor, he says what I like to hear. Um, that entertainment, well, look, they got like blue and purple lights that shoot up and down and looks like flashes of lightning and that's a real rocking worship team. And what happens now, church has become, it's become an experience. It's become a show. We've gotten from the, the people that make up the church to the building that's the church. That's a mistake. Well, we can't as well exhort each other if we're just going in to watch a rock concert, get our ears tickled and then go home and go back into the world. How can we exhort each other? We need to be a part of the church, not just be among the church. Verse 13, it says, to be, not be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I looked at my Greek lexicon, and there's other words that can be used. Don't be hardened by sin, or by the deceitfulness of sin, by the delusion of sin, by the glamour of sin. Sin is glamorous. And it's funny because when, when I was a new believer, I heard my pastor, when I was learning, he says, hey, sin is fun for a season. I was like, you're not supposed to say that. You're a pastor. <laughs> it's deceitful. It hooks you like a fish. You know, you see a, it's, it's a barren pond and then all of a sudden there's a big, fat, juicy worm going by you and that's really looking good. And you bite it and then you're hooked. That's what sin does. It looks good. It tastes good. It feels good. And then when it has you hooked... It leaves you unsatisfied. Always leaves you empty. And in verse 14, the NIV, I, I like the way it explains it. It says, we come to share Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence that we had at first. This is for the long haul. Now, the Hebrew Christians, well, let's look at the children of Israel. They faced a lot. And they were tempted to fall into disbelief. They were tempted to fall into just not even dealing with God anymore. The Hebrew Christians also faced persecution many years later, and they were also tempted to just go back to the temple sacrifices, to just get a little cover so that they're not under fire so much. And I believe it's the Apostle Paul, but the author of Hebrews is warning them against them. What about the American Christians today? What are we prepared to do? How, what type of faith are we prepared to have when... The laws keep changing. As we see in our governments, there's, be, there's laws that are being changed right under our feet. I mean, they are literally pulling the carpet out from under us. A lot of things are changing in this country. Government seems to want to have more control of your children, of what's being taught. We're fighting a battle. We're trying to teach and instill good things in our children and society and the government. And everybody's bombarding them with all this garbage. Well, what happens when, you know, you see, I'm, I'm looking at little changes in free speech that are happening as well in our country. Some of those amendments are being tweaked, right? What are we prepared to do if we start to suffer like the Egyptian Christians, like the Syrian Christians, like other Christians in other places and some Christians on the continent of Africa and Asia? What are we prepared to do? Hide, go back to the world? Or stand firm? Do we have enough in the tank to stand firm? Are we in fellowship? Are we in the word? Are we being built up? So if they took our Bibles, at least there'd be some things that we could memorize and maybe start writing out from memory. Christians who've been in prisons, isolation, solitary confinement, Pastor Wormbrandt, 14 years, that's miserable. 
he said he would almost lose his mind because there was nobody to talk to. You know, when the communists came after World War II and they put him in that Romanian prison, didn't see his wife, didn't see his kids, guards wouldn't speak to him. He had nobody to talk to, and the silence was driving him literally mad. And he, what he did to, uh, to make the time go was to actually write out sermons and keep his mind occupied as he would talk to the Lord. I read this, I'm like, I don't know, could I deal with that? There's definitely application for us, brothers and sisters. Verse 15. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Said twice. And many go to churches and good churches and see miracles. They read about uh, the person who's clean of cancer. They read about or they see the person sitting next to them. Their, their marriages get better. However, they have no relationship. And it's not because of a lack of giving them an opportunity on God's part. To be among the church, but not to be part of the church. Be careful. There is a difference. As if when the rapture comes, as people are starting to go up, you can grab somebody's foot and hitch a ride to the clouds to see Jesus. It's not like surfing. It doesn't work that way. I had a discussion with a woman some time ago, and we, it was a very amicable discussion. It wasn't, you know, you don't browbeat anybody into the kingdom. She was a big denominationalist, big into the events, big into denominational history. And I said, you know, I'm really concerned. I've known you for a while. Do you know the Lord? And she just looked at me. She didn't protest. She didn't argue. She didn't say yes. We had a pleasant discussion, but I mean, I, I kind of pushed it. I wasn't getting anywhere. She just liked to be in the church. She liked the denominationalism of it all. Where do you stand? Why are you here this morning? Do you have a relationship with the Lord? Are you here because of your spouse or your kids? Are you here for any other reason but because you want to get closer to the Lord? Only a question that you can answer. Last few verses. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. This hits hard. The children of Israel, all of them, were delivered out of Egypt... They were baptized symbolically into the Red Sea. They partook of the manna and the miracles. And they still rebelled and they died. There's a chilling statement that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans 9, 6 where he says, it's not as though God's word failed because it never does. Isaiah 55 says it never comes back void. He says, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. They were all in, in the herd, but they were not all with, for the Lord. And, um, you know, Jesus says in Matthew 7, many will come to him in that day. Lord, we did miracles. Lord, look what we were a part of. Lord, look at the things we did. And Jesus was saying, I never knew you. I never knew you. I never knew you. So, in closing, we know three things about the superiority or the greatness of the Lord Jesus over Moses. As the children of Israel did, they knew a lot about the Father through the wilderness and through Egypt, etc. 
And in both camps, there was a hardness of heart that developed. You know, this reminds me of, this reminds me of in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, and God, in the cool of the day, he's walking through the garden looking for Adam and Eve. And he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, well, I heard your voice and I was afraid. Wow, afraid. Here's the guy who created him, who gave him a a spouse, who gave him everything to be at his fingertips, and now he's afraid of God because of his sin. That's what it did to him. Now, when God says, Adam, where are you? It's not that God needed glasses because he's been around for so long that his eyesight is poor. It's not that God's memory is going, Gabriel, what did I do with that man? I know there's only two people that I made. I can't find them. (laughs) He's saying, Adam, to me, when I read that, that blows me away. I actually stop. Certain scriptures, I stop and I go, I take a breath like, that's powerful. Adam, where are you? Adam, where's your heart? Adam, where are we? Adam, where's the relationship? In the children of Israel, he loved them. As a matter of fact, when Moses was supposed to speak to the rock and he strikes the rock. He misrepresented God and God was very offended by that. Moses, I know they need water. Moses, I love them. Moses, I want to provide for them. You made them think that I hate them. And I'm paraphrasing. You made me think that I'm really angry with them. I wanted you to speak to the rock. To the Hebrew Christians, the author of Hebrews is saying the same thing. Be careful. Be careful. As you drift away from God, as his, his miracles, and you're, you're in the middle of it. And imagine walking through the Red Sea and seeing all the water in columns and the dolphins swimming around. Wow, this is like an aquarium. This is better than Camden. I mean, he, they saw all this and they still hardened their heart against the Lord. This morning, I just want to say to you that heart disease is known as the silent killer because it's insidious. It's slow. It's gradual. It usually doesn't give signs until it's close to being too late. Let me say this as well. Spiritual heart disease is the same way. You could be immersed in the Christian community. All your friends could be Christians. You could be on the top of the world in the food chain socially. And your heart is starting to draw away from from God. So I would just ask you this morning, as if the Lord is imploring through this message, because it isn't my business, It's your business with him. As God said, where are you, Adam? Ask yourself this. Where are you in your relationship with you and he? Let's pray.